Good morning and welcome to Grace. I'm Pastor Ryan. Today we begin a four-part series that will lead us into Easter and that is focused on Paul's instruction to the church for how the Christian is empowered to battle against sin. We're going to be studying the perceived paradox of our faith found in the death and life of Christ. Thanks for joining us as we look at the first requirement in this paradox that enables Christians to truly be the living dead. One of the things that I often enjoyed while I worked as a missionary over in the Caribbean was being able to go snorkeling and catch tiny little fish and little crabs. And so now that I'm back here in the freezing north woods, I have a fish tank in my office and one little critter that I've never uh, been able to find many places is a crustacean, is a little crab. But I found one the other day um, at the pet store and they had this tiny little container that these crabs were in. You couldn't even hardly see them. And if you lifted up the stone or the, or the wood, that's where they were. They're hiding. Um, but we caught one and from this tiny little tank, I brought it home and put it in my big, beautiful tank. It's all kinds of food and it's just awesome. And do you know what that little crab did? He hit. Just like he did when he was in the tiny little tank. And he's got so much more for him now. He doesn't have to compete with any of his buddies. I'm going to feed him every day. And yet he hides. Here's a little, I was able to catch a picture of him here. That's, that's what he looks like. Tiny little guy right there. Um, It made me think of the way in which perhaps in our own lives, we, though having been freed, we, though having now received the bountiful blessings of God, uh, the wonders and glories of, uh, of heaven presented to us through Jesus Christ, even though, do we not still sometimes hide in the corners? Do we, though, still not sometimes characterize and live our lives not as those who follow after the victorious, risen King, Jesus Christ, but those instead, having encountered our own depravity again, instead of flourishing in this life, we want to go back into the darkness. We want to cover ourselves up and hide. We're going to begin our study for the next four weeks leading into Easter with a series that I'm entitling The Living Dead. I've been wanting to do this um, series for for quite a long time uh, because there is a paradox within Scripture, one to which I know is the centerpiece of the gospel. This is as as good as it gets when it comes to the, the triumphal proclamation of our having been freed from a slavery to sin through the life of our Savior And yet, it's really hard to understand. Even in my own uh, study for for decades, and then more acutely upon this subject recently, I am once more, you can ask my wife, just continually just pacing through the house thinking, how do do we make sense of this paradox? That again and again and again, we are told in the scripture that we have died with Christ, but we are now offered a new life. And I don't know about all of you, but does it feel like sin is dead in your life? Does it feel that way? Um, In fact, do you feel dead at all? Because I feel kind of alive. And I feel like sin itself is too often manifest as though it's right there living and breathing in my life. And so really, what does this mean? In in what way are the writers of Scripture seeking to press upon this paradox as a centerpiece of the gospel... 
that will hopefully affect how you and I come to answer the question. You ready? How do we deal with sin? How should we therefore now live our lives? Even though we see it continually showing up, thankfully by the indwelling of the Spirit, made illuminated that it shows up. In fact, if you look at your sermon notes, I put there right at the top a little question. Whoever is brave enough, let's see if you'll answer this one. Here's the question. How successful are you in defeating sin? This is a bit of a trick question because some of you might think overly spiritual. Well, I can't do it at all in my flesh. I'm going to put a zero. And well, yeah, that might be true. Or you might think on the other side spiritually. Well, I'm in Christ and he has defeated sin, so it's a 10. All right. Take a chill pill for a minute. That's not what I'm asking. (laughs) I'm asking, as you and I know, the ebb and flow of our life. Do you ever have a a really good day? Do you ever have a a day where it's just like, I've been with Jesus all day. This is the best day. And then do you ever have those other days where you feel like a little crab that wants to hide back into the darkness? So how would you answer that question? A scale of one to ten, where would you, if you're brave enough... When it, not the spiritual answer of your own depravity or Jesus' victory, but just in your day-to-day. Where are you at on a scale of 1 to 10? Because I, I want to say, hopefully, none of you are a 0. I also don't think any of you are a 10. So it's really a question 2 to 9. Where, where do you fall in there? Because really, the, the question when we begin to, to seek the answer, how do we deal with sin? What we're going to see over this morning and the next few Sundays is that it's actually a larger question. The question of how do I as a Christian, therefore, deal with sin in my life, is actually a a lower level question from the higher one, which is, how do I live to glorify God? That's the best question. That's the highest question. It's, It's the question of what do I do as a Christian? Like, why has God put me here? What is the purpose of the church of God on the earth? How do I live my life to glorify God? And as soon as we ask that larger question, hopefully you're tracking with me this morning, what's the immediate one that you and I are aware of? If you're feeling like a crab at all, is how do I deal with my sin? How do I deal with my sin? And so what we're going to do over these next four Sundays is I'm going to offer to you Paul's answer to the sin question But I want to make sure that you're able to track with me because this is going to be sequential. Every Sunday, you're going to get a part of it. I ain't going to give the whole thing all at once. And honestly, I'm going to be lucky to get through even one part of it on a Sunday morning. Some of you know what I mean by that. (laughs) What I want you to know, though, is that each Sunday as we look at this, Paul's argument is so deep. It is so vast. And the paradox is so hard to understand. That it's going to take us little bites, right? It's going to take us little attempts to get a piece of it. And so this morning, we're going to get a piece of it. And so I'll offer to you this morning, I've entitled this message, Know and Reckon. So there you go. If you want to know where we're going to land at the very end of this message, that's the end of it. Uh, How do I handle sin in my life? It's going to involve these two verbs. There's something you need to know, and then you need to do a type of crediting the Bible uses an amazing word for this. We're going to, if you have a King James, and I always remember it this way, reckon, the, our Bibles might say consider. The word means credit, but that's the answer. And that's only part of the answer. 
as we're going to see this morning, but it's going to get us the first bite as we seek to work through this idea of answering the larger question, how do I glorify God with my life? And as soon as we try to answer that, we have to say, well, what do I do with the sin? How do I handle sin? And so I want, before we really dive into that, just to look at this paradox of being those who are living and yet somehow dead how does that work? There's so many passages that speak to this. And this is only, only introductory to the series. Romans 6, 6 says, For we know that our old self was crucified with him, so that the body ruled by sin might be done away with, that we should no longer be slaves to sin. 2 Corinthians 4.11 For we who are alive are always being given over to death for Jesus' sake. So that his life may also be revealed in our mortal body. Or Galatians 2.20 I've been crucified with Christ. Therefore, I no longer live, but Christ lives in me. The life I now live in the body, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. Philippians 1.21, for to me to live is Christ, to die is gain. Colossians 2.20, since you died with Christ to the elemental spiritual forces of this world, why? As though you still belong to the world, do you submit to its rules? 2 Timothy 2.11, here's a trustworthy saying, if we died with him, we will also live with him. Are you getting the point? Do you see how this is repeated over and over, this paradox? And perhaps the best one of all, it's uh, kind of the subtext or the the tagline for the series from Colossians 3.3. For you died and your life is now hidden with Christ and God. What in the world does that mean? I, I, I don't see any dead people. You all look alive to me. And yet somehow the Bible keeps telling me that we died somehow. In, really, in what way did we die? And so there's one verse we're going to look at today, one main verse that we're going to seek to understand. It's in Romans uh, chapter 6, if you will turn in your Bibles there. Romans chapter 6. Uh, we're going to look at uh, two requirements of answering the question, how do we handle sin? We need to know something, and we need to reckon, or therefore credit something, And that's where we begin. Romans chapter 6 for this morning, just verse 11. But then as we read verse 11, you're going to find we're going to have to handle some prerequisites and then some other passages. So it's a, you could say a prayer for me this morning. Okay, did you find it? Romans 6, 11. Here it is. In the same way, count yourselves dead to sin, but alive to God in Christ Jesus. What? A, well, shoot. That's it. Let's pray. Sermon over. Right? Like, like, are you, do you get it? Do you understand it? Because I don't. Like th- that alone, right there. Consider yourselves dead to sin. Dead to sin. You, you, you know what sin is trying to do in my life? It's not dead. So what do you mean? Consider myself dead to sin and alive to God? I thought I was doing that. Isn't that what I'm always doing? Isn't that why I'm a Christian? There's, there's something that's critical for us that Paul is unpacking starting in verse 11. So next Sunday is going to be verse 12. Uh, Sunday after that is verse 13. So we're, we're going to keep unpacking it as we go. But to begin here, we have to begin with some prerequisites. Because as Paul gives this instruction, in the same way, reckon or consider yourself dead to sin, that line is built upon some pre-understandings that if you miss, you're going to be kind of like, I'm up here like, I, I don't even know what he's talking about right now. So those pre-understandings are, they're, 
the simplest, by the way, they're far more advanced than what I'm presenting, but I'm trying to simplify it as succinctly as I can so that we can get it this morning. Um, So three ways. The first has to do with righteousness. Righteousness. Paul, in his presentation through the book of Romans, travels down this long argument that reaches chapter 6, verse 11, when he says, in the same way, count yourselves dead to sin, but alive to God through Christ. He didn't start there. You guys with me on that? Right? He didn't start in chapter 6. He started all the way back in chapter 1, 2, 3, 4, 5. And so we are going to try to pick up the piece as best we can because as he's forming his argument through the book of Romans, he's going to introduce this idea of righteousness. Righteousness. He says in chapter 1, there is a righteousness that's being revealed from heaven. He's going to address uh, what is the common problem in his day, which has to do with this desire to follow what God has said in the law. This idea that if I just do it all just right, if I just, and I know I'm struggling at it, but if I just work a little bit harder in order to follow all the rules that God said, I'll be righteous. That, that's a big part of Paul's issue in his day. You'll even see this reflected in some church traditions today where people and pastors are teaching a, a kind of legalism that God is only happy with you if you are doing this and doing this and doing this. And I'm doing that. And I'm judging you. That, some of you might know what those churches feel like. That's a big problem in Paul's day. This concept of righteousness is the word of legal standing that shows you are not guilty for sin. And if you're no longer guilty of sin, meaning I am no longer carrying within my identity the penalty for sin, I now can have access in the presence of God. Let me ask you just a quick little Sunday school question here. Can God, says yes or no, can God sin? That was a little less confident than I was hoping for, but that's all right. Can God sin? No, can't sin. Can sin even dwell in the presence of God? It can't. No, God, God is perfect. God is the definition of righteousness. And so as Paul unfolds this argument through Romans, this becomes the only criteria for salvation. You must be declared what? Everybody with me? You must be declared righteous. Uh, This from, if you back up to Romans 3.22, this righteousness is given through faith in Jesus Christ. To all who believe. There you go. Uh, how awesome is that? There's the good news of the gospel. It doesn't, it doesn't require any more striving on your part. Because how's that working out for you, by the way? Right? How, how is the sin issue scrambling up as you are trying your hardest? Because that's not what the Bible says. You know what the Bible says? This righteousness is given through faith. It's a faith in Jesus Christ. And there's, there's no favoritism here. It's available to all peoples the Jews, and to the Gentiles. So that's the first thing. We need to make sure we understand that being uh, a, um, a part of the, the building foundation upon which Paul then reaches eventually into chapter 6 that says, therefore, uh, in the same way, reckon or count yourselves dead to sin. Here's the second thing. Uh, th- this one's a little bit more 
full, even controversial in some Christian circles. It's called federal headship. Federal here meaning the idea of complete governance. So you might think federal government is in charge of all 50 states, right? So federal in the sense that it's covering all and headship meaning singular, one at the top. Federal headship is the question of where is the source of that which imparts, and that word, the impartation or imputation, imputation is the, is the word that we actually had in verse 11. So the count yourselves or credit yourselves, or like I've been saying in the King James, reckon yourself, that, that's the word for to impute. Imputation uh, means to put to one's account. That's what it means to impute. The Bible tells us in Romans chapter 5 that there was an imputation. It had to do with two different men, Adam and Jesus. Verse five, uh, chapter 5, verse 19 says, for just, uh, for just as through the disobedience of the one man, many were made sinners. Who's that one man? That's Adam. So also through the obedience of the one man, the many will be made righteous. Who's that one man? Jesus. Good. Most of us in here, I think, are tracking with this. I want to break it down in case this is new information for you, though. That there have only been two humans who have had access without sin to make decisions through which all of, the, all of humans are going to be affected by. Adam had no sin in the garden, correct? Jesus has no sin in his incarnation, correct? That's it. Those are the only two. And here's the situation. When we're talking about federal headship and the doctrine of imputation of sin, without spending another 45 minutes working through Paul's argument in chapter 4 and 5 of Romans, I want to give you an illustration. I think it's kind of like driving a bus. You guys remember riding on the school bus? If you sat right over the back tire, every bump flying up, right? You could goof off and the driver couldn't. So you guys remember riding the school bus. It's like when Adam came into the world and with Eve, having now experienced sin, every single one of us automatically are born on that bus. But Adam's driving it. Adam's driving this bus. And here's the problem. Because you remember in the garden what God said, do not eat of the tree. Which tree was that? This is very interesting, right? The tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And that, that, that's a way in which the biblical writers are trying to present for us. What God means by that is the, the one who's going to be making the decisions. How, how do you know what you should do? How do you know how to arbitrate between right and wrong, good and bad? How do you know that? Well, before they ate of the tree, they would have said, well, God tells us. How, how do I know what's right and wrong? Whatever God says. Whatever he says is right is Right. Whatever he says is wrong, is wrong. It's as simple as that. Until they decided to rebel against what God said, they ate of the tree, and it's like this. If Adam's driving the bus before sin, he's getting his directions from who? Right? Turn here, don't turn here. Speed up here, slow down here. And Adam's like, no problem, I'll do, what, I'll do whatever you say, right? You're in charge. But then they ate of the tree, and at that moment, they started calling the shots. 
Did you ever try to drive through Kentucky? Anybody? I, I was driving through Kentucky once uh, at night in a rainstorm. Totally missed my exit. I'm going totally wrong direction, thinking I'm going the right way. I know there's no folks in here who are guilty of that, right? You've never gone the wrong way, thinking it was the right way. Listen, that's the entire bus. Adam has been driving this bus that we are on thinking, this, what do you, this is the right way. Let's try this way. Oh, I think we should go that way. Let's go this way, right? Completely lost. Do you know where you're going? Sure, I know where I'm going. Don't you ask me where I know. Of course I know where I'm going. I have no idea where I'm going. That's Adam. No idea where he's headed right now. And do, do you know what the difference would be? You might work your way up to the front seat of the bus and be like, hey, dude, I, you're totally lost here. Let me drive because I know where we're going. Anyone feel like doing that? Come on. You guys like being passengers or you want to be drivers? Because I'd rather be the driver. So I'll go up to Adam. I'll say, this, this Yahoo doesn't know where he's going. Let me drive for a while. And I get behind the seat. And as soon as I do, I'm like, oh, shoot. I, I don't know where I'm going. Ryan, of course I know where I'm going. Don't ask me where I'm going. I know where I'm going. That's what it means to have the imputation of sin delivered to all of us. Because not a single one of us knows where we're going. We, all of us, have fallen from the obedience of trusting God to tell us what's right and wrong. And all of us without Jesus are left up to our own best guesses. I think this is right. I guess this is right. Who knows? And then something else happens. Here's the amazing truth of scripture. There's a second bus. At one of our stops, you can imagine. Check this out. Here's another bus that pulls up right alongside. And you know how you open those big doors? Right? And they open up. And we're like, hey. And we look in there. And do you know who's driving the second bus? It's Jesus. And he says, hey, you guys know where you're going? <laughs> no, no, we don't. He's like, I, I, know where, I know where I'm going. Would any of your passengers like to jump on with me? What about you? Does that sound like a good offer? Because as soon as you do, as soon as you switch buses from the one that we thought we were calling the shots to the one that Jesus drives, you now, catch this, this is a key phrase, you are now in Christ. That's, that's the phrase that Paul's going to use, and it's a tough phrase to kind of wrap our heads around. What does it mean to be in Christ? Well, it's, it's federal headship is what it means. You, you've had two options in this universe for those who were sinless and able to make decisions that will affect all of humanity. Adam was the first one of which we've all been born onto that bus. But thankfully, a second bus pulled up. The driver knows exactly where he's going, and we are given an invitation to switch buses and therefore also no longer be imputed with sin because of Adam, but now to be imputed with righteousness because of our new driver. Is that making sense? It's a, it's a really tough thing to wrap our head around. That's probably the best metaphor I can think of to describe this. What I want you to know is that as Paul's making his argument, this is a foundational understanding that we have to conceive of. So righteousness is the requirement to have access to God. Federal headship is this idea that we have a source of imputation. So what is that source? For everybody, it's either Adam or Jesus. Good. All right. And thirdly, and this is last, this is a key concept that Paul's going to build his argument on. Death offers finality. Death offers finality. It's like a, a basketball game, right? As soon as the buzzer goes, Meh, 
Can you keep shooting buckets? Can you? Sure. Do they count? Nope. Over. Done. This is the phrase that we're going to see Paul use. Whoever has died is done or is freed from sin. Do you know that dead people don't sin? Only you do. (laughs) Only living people sin. Dead people don't sin. They're done with sin. In fact, this is in many ways the mercy of God offered to Adam and Eve because there was a second tree in the garden. Do you remember it was? The tree of life. And God says, if they ate of the tree of the life, they're going to they're gonna live having, thinking they're making up their own shots, driving their bus in the middle of nowhere forever. But God offers them this tiny little grace, even as evil and awful as death is the uncreation of what God made, it is still a mercy on God's part that doesn't allow us to live forever estranged from him because when you die, you're done. You're done with sin. Okay, how are we doing? You understand these? These are three foundations so that we can make sense of what's going on here. Uh, this again, the verse from chapter six, verse seven, anyone who's died has been freed from sin. And so for us to understand verse 11, in the same way, therefore, count yourselves dead to sin, but alive to God in Christ, we've got to back up to verse 1 of 6. So go in your Bibles with me. Chapter 6, verse 1, Paul says, What shall we say then? Shall we go on sinning that grace may increase? By no means, the, the Greek there better is translated, uh, may it never be. We died to sin. How can we live in it any longer? Well, there it is. That's the first part it shows up. We died to sin. How can we live in it? Here's the question. Can I go on sinning? Is this like, don't worry about sin. Who cares? God loves you. Doesn't matter. Doesn't matter. And let's just talk for a moment about sin for a second. Because do you know what we do with sin? We are experts. You all have a PhD in sin. Do you know that? (laughs) Experts at it. Because when it comes to sin, you rationalize it three ways. Either you say... I'm just going to recategorize it. It's actually not sin. Do you know that's what our world's doing right now? The, the world is working on simply redefining it uh, for years. And upon the, uh, our conscience, we know it's sin. But all they do is they just redefine it. It's not sin. That's, a, that's the first thing they do. The second form of uh, legitimization, do you know what you can do with sin? You can do this. I'm just, I'm just not going to pay attention to it. I'm just not going to look at it. It's in my life, right? It's, it's there. I can hear the spirit in me being like, hey, bro, you know this is not right. Right? You could do that. You and I can become experts at ignoring the sin in our lives. And then the third thing that we do so often is we will practice what's called self-justification. Let me see if uh, you know of any of these. Have you ever heard this before? Everyone's doing it. Everyone's doing it. So that makes it okay? No, that just shows how terrible it is if everyone's doing it. Or how about this one? Uh, it's not hurting anybody. I'm not, not hurting anyone. Lie. Oh, I have it under control. Oh, that makes it okay then. Sure. Um... Or how about this? They deserved it. They deserved it. The, the way I treated them, what I said about them, they had it coming. I, I was born this way. I was born this way. Can't help it. I was born this way. That makes it okay. Uh, the devil, devil made me do it, Mom. 
The devil made me do it. Blaming someone else. Or how about this? Uh, Even if it it comes awareness with sin, you might hear people say, who who are you to judge? Who you judge me? Right? There's this attack that happens so that you stop looking at me. Like, what about what about them? What about them? Do you remember when that showed up in the garden? Remember, God goes to Adam, and Adam's like, "What about her?" So God goes to her, and she says, "Well, what about it?" Um, we we are experts at redefining sin. We are experts at suppressing the conviction of sin, and we are experts at self justification for sin. And if you go back with me into chapter 6, Paul is dealing with that question. So what do we do? Do we go on sinning? And his answer is, how could you possibly do that? Because you died to it. Have you ever seen a dead person sin? No. That's what you are. I don't feel that way, Paul. Can you explain that to me? Let's keep going. Verse 3. Or don't you know that all of us who were baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? We were therefore buried with him through baptism into death. In order that just as Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of the Father, we too may live a new life. Okay, there's so much there. There's at least three hours work of effort for me to unpack all of that. Um, we'll, we'll, We'll just touch on it here in a minute as we unpack some of our conclusions and observations. Let's continue for now. Verse five, he says, if we've been united with him like this in his death, we will certainly also be united with him in his resurrection. For we know that the old self was crucified with him so that the body of sin might be done away with, that we should no longer be slaves to sin because anyone who has died is freed from sin. Well, we covered that one. That makes sense. Now, if we died with Christ, there's federal headship, right? Christ is the one driving the bus. You're telling me I'm on the bus? You're telling me I'm with him? Paul's like, that's my point. If we died with Christ, we believe we will also live with him. For we know that since Christ was raised from the dead, he cannot die again. Death no longer has mastery over him. The death he died, he died to sin once for all. But the life he lives, he lives to God. In the same way, count yourselves dead to sin, but alive to Christ. I'm, I'm hoping that verse 11 made a little more sense now. In that way, count, think, recognize, categorize, place upon your countenance the factual reality that I'm on the Jesus bus. And he died to sin. And so if I'm in him when he died, I also died to sin. And I need to reckon that. I need to, I need to wrap my head around accrediting that to my understanding. Okay, so verse 11 here. What do we do? How do we make sense of this? Three, three conclusions. First is this. Jesus' death provides our death to sin. Jesus' death enables, opens up, creates the opportunity for, there's a lot of different ways I could have said that, provides. It provides our death to sin. You see this again in verse 10. The death, he died, he died to what? Look look with me in the scripture. I, I know you guys are writing down verse 10. We're talking about Jesus here, the bus driver. The death he died, he died to what? He died to sin. I want you to know this is completely opposite of how man's 
God's answer is completely opposite than man's answer. Do you know man's answer to when you're not doing good? Do you know man's answer is try what? Try harder. Work harder. You're just not trying enough. You're not, you're not doing good enough. God deals with it completely differently. God deals with it by completely removing the sinner. You're actually dead to it. Think, think of how stupid it would be if I had a drill, a little cordless drill. There's no battery in it, right? There's no power. There's no source of strength. And I'm trying to pull the trigger to get it work. And someone comes and says, hey, why is that not working? Pull the trigger harder. I'm just as hard as I can. Is it going to work? Is, is that going to accomplish it? No, because, because I need the missing component, which was that source of strength and power that only comes from God because I in my sin am completely dead. And so I have no power to do this. Try harder. Oh, you know this, right? It doesn't work. Do you guys know this? I, I hope in your own life you gave, give this a try before. It doesn't work. You need to die to sin. Um, when I was uh, in Bible college, we had uh, Pastor James McDonald uh, come and speak to us, and he had just written a book called I Really Want to Change, So Help Me God. Um, and in, uh, in this one particular chapter, um, and it's in the book, but I remember him saying it to us uh, in chapel. His answer was, when it comes to sin in your life, you just need to say, I'm dead to that. I'm dead to that. Whenever sin wants to show up, you say, I'm dead to that. I, I want to give you an example of that. Um, when I was a kid, my mom was a health nut. Still is. Still is a health nut. And one of the things that we didn't get very often was sugar, especially Jello sugar. Now, she did a great job with yogurt and all kinds of other things. Penny, she did great, right? But Jello, we didn't have a lot of Jello. And I went to uh, my buddy's birthday party down the road. And I can remember walking into the kitchen door. He had this like 24, his mom had this 24 inch glistening platter of mountain sparkling jello. It was incredible. All the other kids were wanting to like play baseball and I was just on the table. Just, I mean, this color is better than that color. I'm just eating as much. I have jello colored rainbow fingers. It was so good. And then we went swimming at the Y where I proceeded to drink lots of chlorinated water. And some of you chemists here might know what happens when you mix jello and chlorine in the belly of an adolescent. It's not good. And I got so sick that night. I threw up over everybody. It was awful. It was awful. <laughs> But do you know what? Do you know what I didn't have an appetite for anymore? <laughs> yeah, yeah. Uh, it took me about two decades before I could eat Jello again, right? And this is, in this illustration, I want you to see that that which for me was an insurmountable temptation, I couldn't help but give in to it. I couldn't. I'm even abandoning other things that are really good in my life for the sake of something I probably should not have in my life. Thankfully, my mom even taught me that. Probably isn't that healthy for you, right? I couldn't say no to it until I went through this experience that happened to reshape what it is. And then whenever I saw it, it was easy for me to say, I am dead to that. I want you to see it means I have no more appetite for it. I have no desire for it. This is what is offered to us in Christ. When it comes to the smorgasbord of sin, 
There's all kinds of glittering, glistening sins that are out there. That if you could see yourself in Christ, with him, like, like a glove, Jesus on the cross, and you as a hand in him, I'm there, I am in him. Or as the bus metaphor, Jesus as the driver, and I am with him. That when he died, it was like, I also what? I also died. And so here's the first point. I want you to know that Jesus' death provides our death to sin. Number two, we need to know. This one's a big one. This one's a really, really big one. You need to give me like full five minutes to explain this. We need to know that the fact of our, our, our identity in Christ must become the faith of our freedom in Christ. You might just say, Brian, I think Paul explained it better than you at this point, but give me a minute, right? The fact of our identity becomes the faith of our freedom. Because right now, if you don't have Jesus, you're a slave to sin. Sin is your master. But when you come to Jesus and you now therefore transition your identity from the Adam bus to the Jesus bus, you're free. You're free. I, ha- I have a new identity. That fact of that exchange, Jesus' death on the cross, now becomes for you and I faith. We live by faith. And that faith rests upon the fact of Jesus' death. This was in verse 6. Look with me back in verse 6, because this is where we get the verb, you need to know this. This is something that you do, you exercise in your mind and in your understanding. If you don't know this, you're never going to have victory over sin. All right, here we go. Verse six, he says, for we know that our old self was crucified with him so that the body of sin may be done away with that we should no longer be slaves to sin. I want to confess to you, church, that up until this week, I think I've misunderstood this verse because I had been thinking that the thing I need to know is that my old self was crucified with him. I need to know that. I just need to know that. Now, how are you doing when there's chocolate cake in the fridge? Ooh, your stomach starts to do one of these, and you're like, oh, my taste buds start being like, hey, Ryan, you want some chocolate cake? Oh, temptation is starting to show up, right? And, and what if I just think, oh, my old self was crucified? Does the stomach be like, oh, sorry? <laughs> do the taste buds be like, oh, we're fine then? Does that fix it for you? Because I've thought for years that's what I need to know. I just need to know that. But that's not actually what Paul is saying. So this is just slightly technical here because we're going to deal with what's something called a Greek mood of a verb that's being used here. Because the verb crucified is a particular mood in Greek called the indicative. It's just a way of writing verbs in Greek. And an indicative verb is the mood of certainty. This is certain. Whenever you have a... A verb that shows up in Greek that's in the indicative mood. What the author is trying to tell you is this is a guaranteed certainty. That's what Paul is resting on. But then he says, so that. Look, at, look Your Bible may have it phrased a little bit different. Look again in verse 6. For we know that the old self was crucified. That's factual. That's assurance. That's certain. That's indicative. That's not what Paul's trying to say, though. He's not telling you that Christ died for you, therefore your, your old self is crucified. He's telling you 
Why? Christ died for you that your old self is crucified. Do you see the difference there? Because this, if you, if you miss this point, I think we might miss the whole thing. It's not a question of if Jesus did it for us. That is a fact. Paul's trying to tell you why he has done it for you. So look again in verse 6. We know that our old self was crucified with him. Why? So that, here it is, so that the body of sin might be done away with. For me, you guys, that changes it all. It's not that I need to know that it happened. Paul's like, duh. That's why I wrote it in the indicative. Of course it happened. Because the next verb is in the subjunctive, which means so that this might be the fruit. So that this might be the result. That the body of sin might be done away with and that we should no longer be slaves to sin. It's a knowing this in order to live like that. Know this so that you live like that. I wrote this down. I said, knowing that he died makes me a Christian. Knowing why he did it determines how I live. Knowing that he died for me saves me. Knowing why he did it grows me in holiness. Knowing that he died for me brings me justification. Knowing why he did it grows me in sanctification. Are you guys tracking with me on this? I have to know this in order that it leads to that. And this is why I wanted to frame it this way. You need to know that. You don't just need to know he died for you. You need to know that he died for you so that the body of sin, the body of death, is done away with you. That's why he did it. You guys track with me on this one? Yes? All right. Oh, we're, we're going to have to revisit this because this is a big one. Um, I just want to very briefly point out that when Paul is going to use a metaphor for this, he picks baptism back in verse 2. And he's picking baptism not because it's the idea that you have to go through this ritual or that there is this really special grace that's happening in the moment of baptism. It's actually not the water baptism that Paul has in mind here, even though that's what he means. What, what he has in mind is baptism as a subsuming category of the evidence of your faith by virtue of belonging to the church. That's a mouthful. But that's what he means. If you're in church, well, how do you get into church? Well, you get baptized. That, then you join the church. And so if you're in the church, if this is the evidence of your faith, then you are in Christ. That's why he uses the metaphor of baptism. So you can go back to verse 2. We died to sin. How do we die to sin in verse 3? Because we are baptized into Christ. Therefore, we're baptized into his death. So if your identity is in Christ, that's what he means by baptized. Your, your identity is no longer with you. My, I, who I am is Christ. Just like Paul says, for me to live is Christ. Right? That's, that's what he means by that concept. And so if that's the fact, let's wrap this up again. Repeat it one last time to make sure we get it. That's the fact of our identity. Then we must see that become the faith that motivates our freedom. I need to believe that in order to live like this. All right, lastly, we need to reckon, or in this case, I finished the verb, recognize with conviction unto action the purpose of the Christian yet on the earth, because you're still on the earth. Yes? <laughs> okay. You guys still with me? I know I'm going a little long. You're with me. Okay. You're still here. So what? What was my purpose? This defines my purpose. I need to reckon it. And if you're with me back in verse 11, this is the verb logizmai. It's a verb that means 
to place it to my account as though it's a fact. I want to give you an example of this because um, know and reckon are different. Like to know something is intellectual. To reckon it is to prepare you for action. Let me give you an example of that. Uh, When you hear the Star Spangled Banner at a football game, what do you do? That's weird. Why do you stand? It's kind of, it's weird. You hear a song and you all stand. Why? Well, because there's more that I am acknowledging than just the song. Does everybody understand that? Right? Raise your hand if you served in the military. uh, Right? So that's what? Like 10 of us. The rest of you didn't. Why are you standing? I get why they would stand, right? They served over there, right? So that's why. Why are you standing? Because there's, there's more to this song that I am acknowledging that changes my behavior. It changes my action. Or how about this one? Uh, we're going to have a wedding, right? And the, the groom's down here. He's so nervous, right? Pastor's down there. He's sweating too because that's what we do, right? And then you hear, dun, 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 dun. And, and we look to the back and there's the bride. And what does everyone do? weird you guys like to stand why why are you standing well because we're acknowledging there's more there or maybe this because i'm giving you examples of of what this means to to reckon to recognize it moves us on to action has anyone ever handed you a firearm what did your parent teach you when someone handles your hands you a firearm you're to treat it as if yeah why because this has the power to harm. This has the power to hurt and to kill. And therefore, I'm going to reckon, I'm going to think about it in a way that therefore changes my behavior. You guys track with me on this idea? Because this is what he means. In verse 11, when he says, in the same way, count, that's the word reckon, recognize, count yourselves dead to sin. It is that which motivates you onto behavior. It's not just head knowledge. It's the, it's the inhaling Right before you say something, right? Because I can't say something without first inhaling. That's what reckon is. Reckon is this preparation onto my behavior and how I live. That's what it means to reckon. So I just want to wrap up quickly here because I've gone a little long this morning. So applicationally, what do we do with this? Number one, let me offer this to you. Do not trust your feelings, your emotions, or your temptations. They are lying to you. Instead, you need to know the truth. You need to know the truth. Watchman Nee has written uh, this uh, challenge to the doubting Christian. Here, here's the scenario. It goes like this. Do you feel like Jesus has died? Sure. Then he has died. Do you feel like he hasn't died? He still died. Like, it doesn't depend on what? It doesn't depend on your feelings. You need to apply that to yourself as well. Do you feel like you d- died with Christ? Some days, some days I'm like, yeah, I'm rocking it today. I'm like a seven on that list, right? It's a, I'm doing well. So if I feel like it, I guess that proves I died with Christ. But what about the bad days? If you don't feel like you died with Christ, does that mean you didn't? No. You must still surely therefore know that you did because you are in Christ. I'm, I'm on the bus. I'm on the Jesus bus. Oh, but, oh, but where's he going? Oh, but I don't, I don't know where we are. I don't recognize it. Je- Jesus, do you know where you're going? Right? Oh, I'm a little nervous. 
uh, hey, relax, relax. It's true. It's true. He's in charge. He knows. It doesn't matter how you feel. Do not trust your feelings. Instead, we need to know the truth. In fact, um, many of you might even know that uh, James McDonald uh, is no longer a pastor of the church that he was part of. The, the, very, the very guy who I listen to and esteem, the word I'm dead to that apparently, didn't know how to fully implement into his life the complete mortification of all of his sinful tendencies. And he was, he, he, I, think he, I think he resigned in lieu of being fired. Somebody, raise your hand, are you familiar with this? Like a year or two ago, like this is a big deal. Well, I, I looked in my book and apparently when I got to uh, listen to him, I also met him and I brought this book up front and he signed it. How cool is that? This is, this is what you do if you're a Bible nerd. You get like authors to sign your books, right? He says, James McDonald to Ryan. He wrote very cool socks because I had cool socks on that. <laughs> but then he put this verse, 2 Corinthians 4, 7. 2 Corinthians 4, 7. It's a pretty cool verse. Do you know what it says? It says, we have this treasure in jars of clay. To show that this power is not from us, but it's from God. Because God's answer to our emotions and our temptations and our feelings is actually to bring us to a place of weakness. That we would understand the truth, that it's not from us. Let me just give you one illustration on that. There there was a tree that grew where I was in Ohio when I was in school. Big, beautiful cottonwood tree. And there was this stinking little parasitic vine that would grow up around the tree and work its way to the highest branches with these huge plumed leaves that would block out the sun from the actual leaves of the tree. And it would wrap itself, it would coil its way all the way around every little branch. But it only had one little source. And do you know what you could do? You could go to the, the base, the trunk of that tree, you could take the vine and you could cut it. What is the vine now? Alive or dead? Dead. It's dead, but that tree still has the contours of that warping all around it. If you were to ask the tree, does it feel like the vine is dead? What, what might the tree say? I don't feel like it. It's still here. Church, I want you to know you're going you're gonna to have that moment in your life. Do you know why? You were born on the Adam bus. That's why. You spent your entire life living, trying to make it up on your own from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. It's going to feel like sin still residually is left in here. But do you know what the truth is? Do you know what you need to know? It has been severed. It's dead. That's what you need to know. Number, number two, um, stop sourcing your strength in yourself. Reckon yourself dead to sin through Jesus. At this point, I'm almost just quoting Paul here. But again, I want to remind you of the purpose of this verb to reckon because it is the anticipation before the starting gun. It's the inhaling before the singer sings. It's the, have you ever, have you known a trust fall? You guys know what trust fall is, right? You do one, do one of those, fall on someone's arm. Like, do you know what reckon is? It's the moment right before you give it all up and you, and you fall. It's that moment that happens in your heart. And here's the problem for us as Christians. Sometimes we falsely think I need, to, I need to push sin down. I need to get rid of sin so that I will die to sin. That's what we think. We get it in the wrong order. You, you shouldn't stop hating so that you'll die. You need to stop hating because 
you've died. Does that make sense? You, you need to stop coveting, not so you will die, but because you've died. You need to stop slandering, not so that you'll die, but because you died in Christ. I put like 10 more down here, but you get the point, right? Everybody, everybody get it? When we source this from ourselves, we will find over and over and over we fail. But Jesus is already one. Thirdly and lastly is this. Live for God because you are alive to God. Verse 11 ends with this. In the same way, count yourselves dead to sin, but alive to God in Christ. I want to highlight for you just, just one important point that we, as we're wrapping this up, that we, we missed. Verse 11 starts with this phrase, in the same way. Did you catch that? In the same way. I sort of missed that earlier, right? Yeah, I, I, I'm with him on the point, reckon yourself dead to sin, alive to God. Dead to sin, alive to God. That's the federal headship concept, right? Dead meaning dead because if you're dead, you're done with sin. So there you go, done with sin. What's he mean by in the same way? And he's referencing what he just said in verse 10. Let me just read that to you quickly. He says about Jesus, the death he died, he died to sin once for all, but the life he lives, he lives to God. You now, in the same way, live to God. That's what he means by in the same way. How do we, remember that was a larger question? How do I live my life for the glory of God? How do I do that? Here's Paul's answer. Reckon yourself dead to sin and then reckon yourself alive to God. In, in the exact same for and from prepositions, they apply here as well. Because too often in church, we've been told, you need to pray more so that you're alive in Christ. You need to make sure you're generous with your giving so that you're alive in Christ. You know, you've got it backwards. You're not doing it for this. The reason why you live for God is because you are what already? Because I am alive in God. I'm not doing it so that I live. I'm doing it because I am alive. I want you to know that you don't need to, church, listen, you don't need to hide in fear like the little crab. You, know, you don't need to crawl back into the dark because of these two things. You can know that the old self was crucified with Christ so that the body of death is done away with. And therefore then, deep breath, I'm going to prepare myself now to live and behave in that way. Know and reckon. Amen? Amen. All right, let's pray.